and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Michael Lombardi is a former NFL general manager. He is a three-time Super Bowl champion. He is somebody who thinks deeply about leadership. He has a newsletter with George Raveling called The Daily Coach, which aims to be an inspiration for people around leadership and helping them become a better leader. And Michael's also the author of Gridiron Genius, which I highly recommend you check out as well. So Michael has been in the trenches with some of the best coaches of all time, specifically Bill Walsh and Bill Belichick. He also spent a lot of his career with Al Davis and the Oakland Raiders. And so he's been around some of the best minds in sport, specifically football, and This conversation really gets into culture and leadership, and that's really what his book is about as well. So Michael has been a resource 
not just to some of the best coaches in the world, but to some of the best leaders in the world. And so this conversation dives deep into how you can think about leadership, how you can leverage some of the lessons that he's learned from the NFL and from football and how we all can think like a coach and how we can all coach other people as well. So I call Michael a coach right off the bat because I really do think at his core, even though he spent a lot of his years in the front office and focused on evaluating talent and putting staffs together, I think he really cares mostly about how he can make people better. And so that's what this conversation is about. So here is Michael Lombardi. I don't know if I should call you coach, Michael. Um, <laughs> I I was just talking to someone about this, that, you know, that word coach, which I've been called in my career. Um, oh man, I love being called coach, you know, other than dad. Like I love when people would reference me as coach. How, do you like people calling you coach or what, what do you like to be, be called? Uh, you know, I, I, it's always funny when I think about that, I think about junior soprano when they asked him, do you prefer junior or Corrado? And he says, I prefer Mr. Soprano, <laughs> you know, um, I, I, I just see myself as Michael, you know, um, I've never really been under the coaching umbrella. I've always been an executive or in football. So it's always been Michael for me. And, and, and a lot of it too is I'm influenced by coach Walsh because when I first started at the 49ers at the tender age of 24, 25, he told me to call him Bill. I couldn't really muster enough courage to do it, but he wanted the players to feel like it was Bill and the player. It wasn't like I'm above you. And so there was that connectedness that he wanted. He got it from Paul Brown, actually. Paul Brown was the first to start that. Paul wanted his players to call him Paul. So I have to go here because I'm in Washington, D.C. I was born and raised a Washington, I guess we call it football team fan. And in our city, the owner of the sports team is famous for having people call him Mr. Snyder. And it's, it's a thing. Um, and so I'm, I was just talking to a, a, a client of mine who's a, a sports executive and we talked about alignment, whether it's in college with the athletic director and the football coach and making sure they're aligned with the president of the university and in sports, we see it with ownership and a general manager and a head coach. And when you study elite organizations, whether it's the Patriots, where you spent a lot of time at, or the San Antonio Spurs, a lot of times you'll see that alignment go up and down all the way. Can you talk a little bit about what you observed and how alignment played a role in, in championship success? I think when you have to tell people to call you something and you don't earn it, then there's something wrong with the way you're working. You know, um, I think actions speak louder than titles. So, you know, for me, uh, I, I think to me, the respect you get is the respect you earn based on your level of commitment. You know, one of the things an owner should always do in pro sports is care more than anybody, you know, and, and he's got to demonstrate that care and how he works you know, not how he displays the authority that he is entitled to based on the ownership of the team. So for me, the alignment from every great organization, I think alignment starts and ends with everybody knows their job. Everybody knows their role. Nobody's trying to do things outside their role. Everybody's role is clearly defined. There's been a message and there's been a level of 
determination on what your job is going to be valued by. You know, oftentimes we don't know, like, I don't know if I'm doing a good job. I don't know if I'm doing a good job. Well, if you have really good alignment, people will tell you you're doing good because if you're not, they're going to tell you. When you were a kid, obviously your last name, you're not related to Vince Lombardi, but as a kid, it was clear that you were inspired by him. And I, you know, I, I, when I was researching this, you talk about how his last name would just resonate with you. Did you envision, envision yourself as a coach? Obviously when we're kids, we think of playing professionally, yeah. but did you envision yourself coaching? And then I know you had this opportunity to be around an all-time legend in Bill Walsh, like you referenced, and you've been more on that front office side, but tell me about the vision as a kid and, and what you saw yourself doing. You know, I saw myself being a coach, right? That's what I wanted to do. And then I didn't really want to be in a narrow framework. It was funny, you know, I was a kid here in this little beach town called Ocean City, and I had two friends. We all played baseball, Babe Ruth baseball together. I was 13, and I had gotten this Stratomatic baseball game in the spring of that year, and Sonino, Michael Sonino, he, he didn't know about the game, and we were both on the Babe Ruth team, and our friend Danny Reynolds came in from Pittsburgh, and he was on it. So we started to play Stratomatic baseball. Reynolds loved the Red Sox. He took them. I liked the Braves. I took them. Sonino liked the White Sox because he was in love with Dick Allen. So uh, I started playing that game and I found I love the idea of building a team because we would deviate from the teams, right? We would deviate from, you know, instead of me being with the Braves, we would just draft all the players in the league. We would have a draft. We played this game from, I would say, eight in the morning until two in the morning. And unless we had baseball practice or unless we wanted to go see Linda, Linda Bosby show at the beach in her bikini. Other than those two things, we didn't leave the game. And so I got enamored with the art of building a team, looking at the minor leagues for a player and looking for somebody that could help my team. How do I build this team? How do I make this team better? And, you know, and that, that was what really appealed to me. So when I started this journey is I thought I wanted to be a coach, but at 13, I knew I wanted to be a general manager. And that's when I started to read about anything I could in a book about whether Al Davis or Branch Rickey or anybody who did the player personnel side to try to learn. It's so interesting because I think about my journey. I started coaching basketball. I coached roller hockey in high school and I would coach like middle school age kids or elementary school age kids. But when I was a senior in high school, I was taking a psychology class. And I remember in that psychology class, I would write down my board for the NBA draft. And I was obsessed with the NBA draft. And then I continued to keep a document every year in college for the NBA draft. And I did rotisserie baseball when I was probably seven years old. And then fantasy football came up and, you know, it started to become a thing. I would do that. And so as I think about all that and those experiences, I thought about becoming a basketball coach when I graduated from college and looked into it. And then I thought about being a scout and I ended up not going that path and ended up going the psychology route, which is interesting. But I'm curious because for me, I don't think I would have been a good sports coach. Um, I've been around a lot of brilliant sports coaches. I don't think I would have necessarily been good at that, but I do think I could have been a good general manager. And in your world, in, in the NFL, compared to the NBA, for example, which I know better, 
there are more people like Bill Belichick who are, you know, he's the head coach, but anyone I talk to involved in the NFL will tell you that Bill is going to pro days and he's scouting every college kid far more than other teams. So there's been this meshing of GM and head coach that we've seen work in the NFL, whereas in the NBA, it hasn't been as successful. And the best organizations that I know, there's usually a distinction between the general manager and head coach. So I say all that to say, for you, do you think the skills to be a general manager are applicable to being a head coach? Do you think you could have been successful as a head coach as you were in a front office role? How do you think about those roles and responsibilities? You know, it's football and baseball are so dramatically different, right? And, and football is a game that requires the coach to lead the organization. And if the coach is capable of having a philosophy offensively, defensively in the kicking game, the problem with most organizations are is they don't know who they are because the owner is incapable of defining who they are because it's out of his expertise. Like the owner has made a lot of money in, in communications, telecommunications. And so he doesn't really know what he visualizes his team to become. I, I think of Dan Rooney, Art Rooney Sr., who was going through a lot of, a lot of uh, losing seasons and changing coaches. And eventually when he hired Chuck Knoll, he kind of gave Knoll the ability to define his organization and set the structure in place. And like writing a book, if you don't have a good structure, the book will never turn out very well. And most organizations don't have good structure. They think by defining different roles, they can that creates the structure and it creates an imbalance. And so when you don't have somebody who's giving the organization an overall philosophy, this is who we are going to be offensively, defensively, in the kicking game, in personnel, how we acquire players. This is universally who we are. And it's never changing because I'm not leaving here. I'm the owner. This is who we are. This is how we do business. Then you get this randomness that happens in the NFL and you become subjective to who you hire. You become subjected to the Jacksonville Jaguars have had one winning season in the last 11 years, right? And they don't really understand what their problem is. It's They, they think it's a, a talent evaluation problem from the head coach. They don't understand it's an institutional problem within their organization. And so because they don't understand that, they keep making decisions, replacing, and maybe they'll catch lightning in a bottle at some point and get somebody to come in there and really give them this. But for the most part, they never do. And that's why Walsh would always say we're really only competing against eight teams because he knew only eight teams had that organizational structure that would allow them to win where the coach was, where they had a foundation built that was everlasting. It's so interesting. So my dad was a sports owner, Atlanta Hawks and the Atlanta Thrashers, basketball, NBA and NHL. And he had a successful business that he built and in his business, it was all about culture. It was all about, you know, he would get such pride when they would get written up for their culture and, and celebrate it and get awards. And so he really cared about that and spent so much time thinking about it. And yet when he got involved with the, the sports teams, I remember, especially with the hockey team, a media person saying, you know, the issue with the thrashers is that they don't have an identity. And my dad was like, what do you mean? Like, we just need to get better players. And over time, it probably took him eight years, I would say, 
to understand it. And it actually was a great general manager who opened his eyes to it, Danny Ferry. And, you know, when Danny came to the Hawks, he was really thoughtful about the groceries they were shopping for. And what I mean by that is he really started thinking about who do we want? How does it align with our system? What's our philosophy? And then he, Danny, hired a head coach in Mike Budenholzer, who also aligned with what Danny wanted. And the fruit that was born from that, you could see. And it was incredible to watch. And up until that point, I didn't believe in it, even in the world I was in, which was sports psychology. I still was like, no, you get LeBron James, you win. It's like, that's that's a game. And in the NBA, no doubt, stars matter. Right. But I hadn't seen that and witnessed that. And so for you... You got to be around, you mentioned Walsh, Bill Walsh, build this thing from, from the ground up with the 49ers, where he takes over a, a losing team and helps build it and create it. And in, in short order, he ends up really turning that thing around in an incredible way. You get to watch Bill Belichick with the New England Patriots become arguably the best coach ever um, alongside Tom Brady and Bob Kraft and all these other people. Um, but for you, you also came from Al Davis and spent a lot of time with Al Davis and you would talk about in your book, how Al was focused on talent and he was specific on the talent he wanted, but perhaps didn't think about these other pieces of the puzzle for you. If you were running an organization today, how do you take all the information that you've learned along your way and think about how you articulate your message up? So how do you think about managing up to someone like my dad to help him understand better how important it is to think about the building of a team? You know, I mean, that's a really great question. And, and I've had one opportunity to do that. Uh, I was in Cleveland and Jimmy Haslam, the owner, asked me to write up a what I thought was the manifesto of an organization. And I did. And I got fired two weeks later. So I never had a chance to. But what I tried to write in that was, for me, my job was is to give him what 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 should be the way he should run his organization from that day forward and have policies and protocols in every area. And we never are able to ever accelerate what we want until we eliminate what we don't want. And so most of the time, there's always this grab bag, you know, we need a left guard or we need a right guard or we need a point guard, you know, we need this. When reality of it is, is we don't really know what we need because we don't have a structure in place to tell us what we need. In professional sports, you are truly in the veterinarian business, right? The patient doesn't talk to you. The scoreboard says you lost, but you really don't know why you lost. You know, a lot of people have theories, well, we need a better guard or we need a better this, or we need a better that. But that's not really necessarily always true. But when you have structures in place and protocols, now you can diagnostically test what you need. And so therefore you never are able to improve. And so what I wrote for Haslam, in this huge document, which I'm sure he never read, uh, was how to lay it out, how for him to be, to set the tone. For example, I don't wanna have a debate. If, if I worked for your dad and he owned the Atlanta Hawks, I would say to him, where are you on, where are you on marijuana? Where are you on these kind of instances in terms of players' character? You know. Would you have taken Tyreek Hill based on what he did at Oklahoma State? The answer is no. Okay, great. I got that. I got that. Perfect. He's out. 
if you do this, he's out. I just need you to know what the direction is of the organization. I don't want you, I, I, I need to know that in advance so we can put that in stone and build around it so we're not line iteming everything in place. You follow me? And you do that for every single area of the team. And then I want him to tell me, what when you go to a basketball game, what do you want to see your team do? Do you want your team to be a defensive team? Do you want your team to be offensive? Do you want to light the score? What do you want? Because when you tell me what you want, we're going to great, we're going to establish a grading system that gets us what we want. But if you don't tell us what we want, and I'm not talking about from a scheme standpoint, I'm talking about an overall philosophical standpoint. I want tough players who are physical, who are hard-nosed, determined. Okay, great, perfect. I got it. We're going to grade it, we're going to build a grading system because you build what you want. The problem is most sports teams don't have a system to, so they don't build what they want. They build what they think they need. And that's where it all falls apart. And that's why people who've been successful in business come into pro sports and they don't quite understand it. And they're missing that link. And they think it's all about procurement of talent when it's really about procurement of philosophical understanding from them. Why did you get fired? Because, you know, he felt like uh, he, you know, he felt like media wise, I wasn't popular in Cleveland because I was there before and I left when the team moved. And so there was a lot of animosity towards me in the town from that. Uh, and that wasn't good. And I think he felt like he wanted to start anew, which was his entitlement, which is fine. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because then I won two more Super Bowls working with Bill. And he got to pay me for it. So, I mean, I, I, when I when he told me he was firing me, I don't think he realized he was still going to have to pay me. I think he thought he was working at Pilot Flying J and I was just going to go away. You know, I had a contract. So I got to go and got to work for the Patriots at a very reduced salary. And it worked. What did you learn from that experience? I learned that no matter how successful you are in business, no matter how hard you work, no matter how much you you think you know, you don't know. And the more people you listen to, who you trust, are gonna are probably not gonna help you. Hmm. Haslam had the Haslam would listen to everybody. So he didn't have any, any, he was taking information in from everywhere, which allowed him to change his mind constantly. He never trusted his gut instinct. So he was the farmer that kept digging up the field thinking it was gonna grow. And in pro sports, there's 30, maybe 32, depending on the sport, general managers. For you, when when you get fired and then you get to go work with Bill Belichick, what was the thinking there? Is the thinking, gosh, I want to be a GM again? Um, what's going no. on in your mind? My no, no, my I wanted to be I wanted to go to it's like I wanted to, it was like being at a funeral. You only wanted to be with people that knew the person. And I only wanted to be with people that saw the game the way I saw it. I, I got tired of fighting people that didn't see the way I saw. I'm not saying I'm right, but I got tired of speaking Chinese in Italy. You know, I wanted to go be around, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to speak Italian with Italian. I wanted to speak the same language with somebody that I knew we were connected completely philosophically. And that was really only one guy. And that was him. 
And that and that's why for me, that was the greatest three years of my life because I didn't really, there was never a debate over what we were going to do or what we were talking about. It was all philosophically aligned because we were aligned. We saw football the same way. Again, I'm not saying we see it the only way because there's a thousand ways to do it. Joe Gibbs did it his way. Bill Parcells did it his way. Vince Lombardi, Don Shula, all these, all these great coaches. But Bill and I grew up together and saw the game the same way. And when I say that, we saw player acquisition the same way. We saw the building of a structure the same way. We saw protocols the same way. So it, that became, I got tired of fighting a, a, a way that people didn't understand. I know you're, you're friendly with Eric Mangini or you, you go back Cleveland days. We had Eric on the podcast. Eric's a friend. Um, and I, you know, Eric was pretty open about coming up with, you know, Bill Belichick, Bill Parcells, getting a head coaching job, very young, you know, in, an, in a big market. Um, and, you know, those that know Eric, at least my interaction with him is he's a very likable guy. Um, yeah. And yet, like I, I talked to a player that played with it, played for him um, in Cleveland and said, Eric had a hard time connecting with a lot of the players. And the player told me, it's like, Eric's football IQ was off the charts. Like he knew the game inside and out but he had a hard time connecting with this player who was a star player uh, for him and struggled with the communication elements. Um, as I think about your tenets of leadership that you talk a lot about, um, one of the areas that I was curious about is around like emotional intelligence. Because when I study great CEOs, the best of the best have like three elements and we'll map these with your four a little bit, um, but their attention to detail is incredible. Um, their ability to strategize or have a vision for where they want to go is really strong. And then there's a third piece where they're able to connect with humans. And I find that a lot of good CEOs have two of those three elements and can be very successful with two of those three. But the unicorns, the rare ones that inspire the hell out of me are they have the human skills, the emotional intelligence. I call them strong skills. Uh, our world calls them soft skills. They have an amazing attention to detail and knowledge or wisdom and intelligence. And they have this vision or this creativity or this strategy. Um, as I think about Eric uh, and I listen to that player, like Eric, because he was around Parcells and Belichick, Eric would say, yeah, like I, I didn't get to show them like all of who I really am. And right. he even would talk about with the media and being someone he wasn't really with the media because um, he's a very likable guy. No doubt. Um, can you talk a little bit about that third piece, the emotional intelligence piece? Because from an outside person looking in at, at Bill Belichick, we all see this guy who clearly like outside, outside the part, like incredible with the attention to detail, incredible with the vision and the strategy, but we don't get to see the emotional intelligence piece. Um, and, and perhaps we're missing, perhaps we're not seeing it. You reference it a little bit in the book. Um, but can you talk a little bit about him as a, as a quote unquote CEO or as a head coach? I think the number one trait, you know, besides the four areas of leadership that I wrote about and what you just discussed in those three areas, what I find to me, the number one trait that great leaders have, and I mean truly great leaders, is they understand what the job is and what it isn't. Now, I know that sounds really simple, right? But what I think Eric made mistakes, and I would share this with Eric, and I think Eric's a brilliant man is I think sometimes, 
and guys that have been with Belichick and have left and haven't had success, I don't think they understand truly what the job is and what it isn't. And so they focus on things that it isn't. And whenever Bill gets to make any, Bill is always focused on what the job is. And so, and he, and he puts it under this umbrella, this core principle of for the good, I'm going to do what's right for the team, what's the best thing for the team. Well, what he's really saying is, I know what my job is. My job is to win games with the team. I, I remember going into a coach's office in college in, in, in the Southeast Conference. I was going to speak to this team. And I walked into his office and he had all these pallets of the new facility that they're going to build for the football team. And he's got the, you know, the weight room and he's got the classrooms and the meeting rooms. And I said to him, I said, you know, this is great. But the reality here is you probably are building this for some other coach. Because your job isn't to be the architect. Your job isn't to raise money. Your job is to build this football team. You're a really good, you got this job because you are a really good offensive coach and you wanted another school and you got this job. And now all of a sudden you're stopped coaching. It makes no sense at all. Belichick and the great CEOs truly understand what the job is. And so they focus on that on a continual basis. So every decision they make, it comes back to that principle. Does this benefit the job? Do you think that I think of, you know, you mentioned Nick Saban in the book, you mentioned Pete Carroll in the book, you mentioned Bill Belichick in the book, all three of those guys got fired um, or struggled in some way um, and went to a different place, uh, sometimes a couple of different places and, and then had success. Let's just use them as examples. Do you think that they learned that, that, Hey, I need to understand what the job is and what it isn't. Um, and where do you think that they had that and they were just in the wrong, wrong environment? You know, it's funny in the new book, I, I kind of wrote about a lot of different scenarios about coaches get themselves into and situational based. And I, and I do think sometimes it, it becomes the owner really, you know, doesn't like Belichick and Modell. I mean, that was oil and water. Modell wanted to, uh, he wanted PT Barnum to be his head coach. He wanted somebody to go out there and sell and, promote and Bill wanted to do nothing but that. Bill understood the job was building his culture. Modell understood, thought the job was to spread goodwill to Northeast Ohio. There's a complete disconnect, right? So a lot of it is the situations you get into, you know, that you can't avoid. I think probably as I look back on my life from, from 63 years going backwards, I think the, 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 the race to try to get a, a job and take any job is probably more has a detriment more than anything because you're, you're, you're too much, you're too impatient. You know, that's part of us being who we are. We become impatient. I better take this job and I can make it work. You know, I can fix it. I always tell coaches that I talk to, don't take, don't walk into a new job and say, here's my hundred day plan moving forward. You need to spend a hundred days looking back because you're really not a better coach than the guy you replaced. So you better figure out what his problems were and what he couldn't solve before you take that job moving forward. Because if you don't, they're going to get your ass too. So I think that's one of Belichick's greatest strengths. And I think if you look at the guys that have left him, whether it's Mangini, whether it's Patricia, whether it was Josh McDaniels in Denver, I think they focused on things what the job wasn't. It wasn't being an asshole. It wasn't not connecting to players. 
you know, and Bill does, you know, Bill has a way of connecting with players through his intelligence. And he does it in a real simplistic way because when he predicts what's going to happen in the game and then it happens in the game, there's a sense of, oh, shit, that guy's really smart. I better listen. There's a lot of directions I could go in, but my mind is is spinning around how you earn someone like that's trust. And it's clear with Bill Walsh, you did it at a much younger age, driving his Porsche, you know, being a gopher, so to speak, with Bill Walsh and earned his trust through building a relationship. But that's way different than coming in as a former GM um, and and coming in and, and serving with Bill. Can you talk a little bit about how either starting out, because there are people that are listening to this that might be gophers that are looking to earn someone's trust or someone who might've just gotten fired and is looking to figure out, all right, what's next for me? And maybe they want to go earn someone's trust in a, in a different way. Can you talk a little bit about yourself and how you were able to do that with these two legendary coaches? Well, the first one was really, it was just because, I mean, I was a listening ear for them and, and once and both men, it's funny, in the new book, they're both Walsh and Belichick are very, very similar. They're different. You know, one guy would wear perfectly white shoes and pressed golf shirts, and the other guy is going to, you know, cut everything off. But at the core of who they are, they believe in this concept of if I give you something to do and you do it well, I'll give you something else. You know, and if I give you something else, the more I give you, the better you got to do it. And if I give you things that you can't handle, then we're probably not going to get very far. So my advice to people that have an opportunity to gain trust is whatever job someone gives you, do it the best you can. Don't get it over with. Do it really well. You know, it's it's like, why does Robert Carroll write all his books on a white legal pad? Because he, he thinks going fast is bad. He thinks going slow is a virtue. So he so he writes it, then types it, then type. And then he gets there. It takes him forever to do it, but that's his process, right? So I think if you're trying to gain someone's trust, you have to do the job that they give you so well, and you've got to take it to a different place that they didn't anticipate it was going to go to. Like Walsh asked me to go to the book, the library. This is 1986 and do a report on steroids, right? Because this is 86. We knew nothing about steroids, right? Even though there were some indications of the Steelers teams through the 70s when they would go to that restaurant and, and they would work out in the bottom of the basement in this restaurant uh, and they would all lift weights. There was some conversation about the impact of maybe steroids on their team, but we really didn't know a lot about the drug. We didn't know about what it did, what the symptoms were, and we were starting to get a lot of players that were using it, and so we were watching kind of an artificially enhanced player. And we made a mistake in a draft on one of those. So Walsh tells me to go to the library to do a book report on it, basically. That's Bill. Bill was like, I don't know something. Some, you know, I don't have time to do the research. You do it for me. And so I think when you do that, you have to visualize what they want in their report and then add more to it, take it to another way. It's like second order thinking, right? So if, if we say we're going to like when I do presentations all the time about decision making, I have I have a, a, a clip of the three stooges in a rowboat. 
and I wrote about this in Gridiron. You know, they have three in a rowboat, and Curly, you know, there's a hole in the boat, so Curly drills another hole to let the water out of the first hole, right? Well, Curly's clearly not second order thinking, right? He doesn't he doesn't see the problem that he's created by his decision. So when you do a project and you second order think it, you now give that person more fuel to advance the story. And someone as smart as Belichick and as smart as Walsh, they can take it anywhere. It's interesting because I think about the two of them and you're saying they, they had a lot of similarities. They also had great quarterbacks. Um, and you got to be around Joe Montana and Tom Brady uh, for a time. I know you were with Randy Moss in Oakland and then he's goes to New England, uh, Jerry Rice. So it's kind of crazy when we think about who you were exposed to and, you know, Bill Walsh, Bill Belichick, these are teams that were dynasties. Um, and then you have arguably the two best receivers of all time that you're around, um, and the quarterback. So what differences do you notice between those? Let's just focus on those three roles, uh, the head coach, the quarterback, the wide receiver. If we just stay on that, um, what, what led to greatness for coaches? What leads to greatness for quarterbacks? What leads to greatness for wide receivers? And maybe there's overlap, but perhaps there's differences as well. I think it starts with this, you know, in 1979, when Joe was coming out of college, Bill Tobin, who was the general manager of the Chicago Bears, on the morning of that draft, kissed his wife and children goodbye at the breakfast table and said, if Joe Montana is there in the third round, we're going to pick him. And unbelievably, Joe Montana was there in the third round and his wife loved Joe Montana. And his son, who's now a personnel director at the Bears, uh, at the the Bengals, loved them. And they picked Willie McClendon for some reason because they had McClendon rated higher. But the question is begged to ask is, would Montana have been Montana if he didn't go to, if he didn't go to San Francisco with Walsh? Would Belichick have been Belichick if he wasn't on the campus of Navy around Roger Stahlbeck? Understanding the value of team, understanding the value of culture, understanding all those things. It really goes back to the outlier book of, Mal- of Malcolm Gladwell, where would Bill Gates have been Bill Gates if he didn't live in Seattle? So I think what they all have in common is, is they were all in the right place. They were smart enough to handle it. But from a coaching standpoint, what made the players so good is that Walsh Belichick understood the player's talent understood the player and understood the plays needed to make the player great. And so that blending, that understanding of how do I enhance this player? I mean, think about Brady now. He's a sixth round pick. The 2001 offense to the 2019 offense had gone through many, many changes. And for people that say, well, Belichick rode Brady's coattails. Well, who made all those changes? Who adapted the offense through those years? Brady didn't coach the team, you know? So it's that ability to, to get there and understand how to utilize the talent. You know, there's a great scout who's not in the Hall of Fame, and it's unfortunate. His name is Jack Venisi. And Jack Venisi was the Packers head scout from 1952 until his death in November of 1960. And he amassed over his career – before Lombardi arrived, almost 13 Hall of Fame players in those drafts, Bart Starr, Forrest Gregg, Paul Horning, you name it, right? Go through them all. 
But they, but the reason Lombardi gets the job is they're terrible. They can't win. It isn't until Lombardi gets there that utilizes the skills of the players within his system. For as great as Greg was, for as great as Bart Starr was, I mean, Lombardi gets to, gets to Green Bay in 1959 and he trades for Lamar McCann, the quarterback, because he doesn't know how good Starr is, who's a 16th round pick. So the point I'm trying to make here is when you understand what you're looking for, it goes back to this original point. When we know what we're looking for and we find and we develop the talent within the system, it's one of Walsh's pet people. I, if I, I wake up in the middle of the night here and we are going to develop the player's skills within the system. But what we're going to do first is find players that fit the system. Right? And now we can develop them. And so Walsh and Belichick have these systems. And so Walsh gets a quarterback in the third round. Belichick gets a quarterback in the sixth round. And all of a sudden, they have Hall of Famers. And Walsh takes Steve, Steve Young when no one else wanted him. No one else wanted Steve Young. He's in the Hall of Fame today, but no one wanted him. His LA Express days to his to nobody wanted him. He took him off because he fit what he wanted in the system. Yeah, for me, like I, I find it less interesting. Like people like to talk about the Brady versus Belichick. I'm like they're both all time, all time. It's like who cares? I I don't really care as much about like who was it, who deserves the credit. Every great coach needed a great player, and every great player needed a great coach to fulfill their potential. But what I am curious about is what's underneath for those roles. So is the role of a head coach and what's necessary to be successful in that role different than what's necessary to be a star player. And that to me is fascinating because yes, the quarterback needs to be a leader, but from my perspective, it's different when I'm executing, throwing balls and and doing something, or or it might be different than a wide receiver and what's necessary. So I'm interested in like, the DNA of those roles and how there might be similarities and differences. We see coaches who, who didn't play at a high level have success in sports quite a bit. I think today it becomes less and less important than it was 20 years ago um, to have played at a high level because they understand what that what's needed of that role. So can you talk a little bit about the roles of a star athlete compared to a star coach, because your, your job as a general manager was to find a great coach. And then your job is also to find a great athlete. So I'm curious about like the DNA or the wiring or, or what's underneath. The well, hood, all so of them have one thing in common. All of them have competitive stamina, right? All of them. That's what they all have. And, and what is competitive stamina? So the Navy SEALs spend what, $300 million a year to recruit 175 men and women to join the BUDS training program, right? And you've seen the helmets in the quad. You've seen them all. I mean, they end up with 25 people. They, you know, it's a, it's a horrendous ratio of investment to, re, to reality, right? Well, be, why? Why can't they figure this out? Because they can't really determine in most athletes that they take, and all of them can run the fastest, all of them can swim, all of them can do the mile and the pull-ups, the chin-ups, all that crap, right? But they can't measure competitive stamina. Can you do it time and time again, over and over and over? You know, Tom Brady on a Thursday during the regular season is going to, is going to do quarterback drops with harness around him. And, that, and, and he's going to have the trainer push him so he's got resistance training for quarterback drops. Now, how many times do you think Tom Brady's had quarterback drops in his life since he was, what, 13, 14 years old, right? And so 
does he really need that? No, he probably doesn't, but he's so competitively that he knows he's got to do it to get better. He's willing to do, he falls in love with the process. He doesn't fall in love with the results. That's competitive stamina. So that's the similarities. How about the differences? Well, I mean, I think, look, the players play within their framework of their game. And so the coaches have to play, have to manage all three elements of the game, whatever game they are. You know, they've got to be able to see the game today and tomorrow. One of the things I think about Belichick and Walsh, I think they had sustainability. Walsh leaves the 49ers and they win two more Super Bowls. You know, Belichick is never going to put the Patriots in a place where they're not sustainable when he walks out the door. So it's a little bit different. You know, players don't have to worry about what happens after I leave. Coaches do. Yeah, and I think about those Navy SEALs. We've had on a number of Navy SEALs on this podcast. I've become friends with a bunch. We've also had leaders of SEALs. And I find them to be very different. Like the a lot of these Navy SEALs are head down, tunnel vision, do my job, execute. Um, they're badasses um, who serve our country in an incredible way. Whereas the leaders also, those qualities, but... I find them to be a little more strategic, a little more thoughtful with their words, um, a little more big picture, um, maybe a little more emotionally intelligent. And I'm generalizing here because I know SEALs that have those qualities too. But I think the same way with athletes, like I think athletes can be really great at executing and be told this is your job and go do that really well. But to have them understand the complexity of a puzzle, so to speak, they, they can struggle with that at times. And that's why I think sometimes we see these great athletes struggle to become great head coaches and we can take it away from sports. We see the great salesperson who's great at executing sales, but really struggle and they have to manage other humans. Um, yeah. So I'd love to get your input on that just because from the seat you sat in, y- your job was to evaluate what, what you're looking for in, in both of those as well. Well, most of the time, the, the player is just interested in making himself better. The leader is trying to make everybody better. And so, and oftentimes players that struggle fail because they see one of the things that Brady had a hard time with, especially when in his late thirties is trying to get players who are completely different than him to operate on his, on operate on his game length length. Right. You know, I mean, he's could be the father of most of these kids. And so there's this generational gap that exists where when you're the leader you have to learn the generational gaps. You've got to understand that, that the kid today is different than five years ago, 10 years ago. And so you've got to kind of blend that through. The guy that's the seal is just really the, what they tell you, the people that make it. And I would love to hear your commentary on this. But the ones who make it only, and you use the word do your job, the ones that make it only worry about the next drill. They stay so present in the drill that they're doing. They don't even think about the next drill. The next drill only enters their mind when they go to the next drill. It's the eating of the elephant. They, it's Everything's just one bite. The people that fail worry about budget, what we're gonna do three weeks from now. You know, and, and, and great leaders, great leaders. One of the reasons, you know, one of the similarities between Walsh and Belichick is they were both tardy for meetings all the time. You know, punctuality never really mattered to them. Huh. You know, and so like Bill might have an eight o'clock staff meeting and he may not show up till 820. Same thing with Walsh, you know, and they they were not 
uh, they were not intentionally tardy. They just had a lot on their plate. Were there players? Were there players tardy for meetings? Players with coaches. Yeah. Now the players, he wasn't always as late, you know, but if he had something, but what, what, what they did was they handled the business that they had to handle at the present time. So they gave that their complete attention. And if it took five minutes longer than it probably should have, they were going to, somebody else was going to have to wait five minutes, but they weren't going to delay. They weren't going to lukewarm. Oh, I got that. No worries. You know, and then three weeks later, wait a minute, you talked to me about that. I don't remember you saying that. Like they lived in that moment. And I learned at first, I thought it was an inconvenience and I could see by your face, you see it that way too. But as I learned, as I watched it, right. I learned that, you know, they had so many roles within the organization, so many layers of decisions they had to make that five minutes to focus on what the task was. Again, what is the job? What is it that they made that decision? And somebody paid a four minute price for waiting. That's awesome. Uh, I've got executive clients that are continuously late. And I just say to them, I'm like, hey, is this something you want to address? And sometimes it's not. And I have a coach that I work with and I was late to one of our meetings and I apologized to her. And she's like, Brian, you're paying me. Like how, how you want to use this time is up to you. And I think about that. Like I, I am someone who prides myself on being on time. And I, I just, i I just value that. And so I set boundaries to ensure that I do that, but I'm not running a football organization that is way more complicated and has moving parts and is changing every day. And so I'm thinking about that for people that are listening, where like, what are the expectations? What are the standards? How do we establish those? How do those show up? And then like you even talk about Brett Favre in your in your book and his issue was he was drinking, but he was showing up late, showing up late, showing up late. And you talked about the culture in Atlanta where he was playing at the time and that they hadn't established um, sort of the norms or the standards or the expectations. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it was okay if you were late, as long as you were working on something to help the team get better, but it probably wasn't okay if you were sleeping in or you oh, were yeah. partying the night before and you didn't make but, it because of that. But everybody knew Walsh was working on something really important. Everybody knew Belichick was like, he was not sleeping in on it. Like he wasn't on the phone bullshit with some reporter. You know, this was, you know, and and even though other people would be, you know, if you're late for a meeting, you're in trouble. His was more because of, hey, I got to take care of this. But my point that I really want to emphasize is they didn't gloss over it. They didn't say, well, I'm late for a meeting. I got to go. Just do what you got to do. No, no, no. They were going to focus on what they had to do. And then they were going to get to it. And then what I hear from you is, so when you had them, you had them. So you would rather them be five minutes late but you have their full presence. Uh, and, and that's what I say to my clients. I go, if you're running late, just shoot me a text. Just tell me, hey, I'm running five, five 10 minutes late. No skin off my back. Um, I think my issue is I also think about the worst. So when they don't, when they don't show you up know, like five, 10 minutes, I, I start to get nervous about where they are. You know, what I learned from Bill, which is a lot of things from, from Belichick is that you said, I, I pride myself on being on time. I prided myself on returning every phone message. When I and when I first met Bill, I walked into his office and he had a stack of those. You know, you're probably too young to remember, but you know, we used to have a secretary would type up. You know, this call came in for you. We didn't nobody had a cell phone, so if you missed calls, they would give you the you know who you, who you missed calls from. You went through it all. Well, 
he had a stack on his desk and I said to him, God, are you going to return those calls? And his answer was really, it was, to me, it was a great learning experience. He said, I'll answer them when I get to them. You know, and so that Eisenhower grid of urgent and important, he lives it. I was just thinking about that. That's what was coming top of mind. I had a client I was working with earlier today. We talked about the Eisenhower matrix, which those that are unfamiliar, it breaks down important and urgent. So um, four different quadrants. It's fantastic. It's probably the number one tool I use with my clients. And I had a client today who she got sticky notes from Amazon that are just like a pad of sticky notes with important and urgent so that she's constantly reminding herself to focus on not just what's important and urgent, but also what's important and not urgent that she has to plan for as an executive. And yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. And um, that's what I love about your work is it's so clear that you've, you've taken a deep dive into tools and frameworks. And I know you're on the knowledge project with, with Shane Parrish and he did such a great job outlining mental models on his website. If people haven't been to Farnham street, it's all there. You can just go and grab these mental models and I've grabbed them and it's, it's incredible what's accessible to us. Uh, there's another coach that I have to get your opinion on. Certainly before we close today, you mentioned him previously, you mentioned him in the book. I'm from Washington, DC and I grew up, I was born in, in the eighties. And so Joe Gibbs, you grow up around this legend and they win three championships and um, you know, I remember the day that he came back and it, it was the most celebratory <laughs> moment in Washington, DC. And, you know, for those that don't know about Joe, um, you know, he won three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks, which you, 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 you throw into the book and you say, Hey, he's probably someone who should be mentioned as one of the best coaches of all time. And I think what also people don't realize is when he came back to DC, people think of it as a failure, but if you look at it, he's been the most successful head coach in the Dan Snyder era. Uh, he went to two different playoffs. He almost had a 500 record, which given the environment, which was what we talked about earlier, um, I think it was a challenging environment. He de dealt with, you know, the murder of Sean Taylor, like a lot of headwinds working, working against him. And he still was able to put together some successful teams. Can you talk about what you observed maybe from afar, what you know about him as a coach? This is like the fanboy in me coming out, like, you know, growing up in DC. Um, he was someone that certainly we admired and we looked up to. And, and then he had success in NASCAR as well, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, which I think is incredible. You know, the, the story I write about in my new book about dance, about Joe Gibbs is one of the best coaches in all of the NFL is, is in 1987, we had a strike, you know, with the strike teams and, and, uh, and the, the owners decided after one week of the strike, we were going to bring in replacement players. And so we did. It was fun. It was a great time. We're getting guys out of car washes and we fielded teams and, you know, and the, the players were pissed off and they had picket lines. And some cities that were union, really cities, you know, enforced the picket lines and made it hard on the, the replacement players. And some, you know, didn't care. Well, Washington was one of those cities. Dallas was the third game when the strike was over. The strike ended, I think, on a Thursday, but it was too late for the some of the players to come in. And so some teams, like us in Cleveland, we had a bunch of players cross the line for the third game. And the Bengals, which was a city that was really strong union, they didn't have anybody. And so we went down there and killed them. Well, Monday Night Football that weekend, Washington's in Dallas. And Washington has got a very, very strict union component their their players association so none of their players crossed the line meanwhile dallas they did 
Danny White came in, Tony Dorsett came in, you know, Randy White came in, a bunch of their players came in. Joe Gibbs takes his scab team down there with Anthony Robinson, the quarterback from Tennessee, Tony Robinson from Tennessee, and Lionel Vital, the running back from Nichols State, and he goes down there and beats them. He beats them with his scab team, and they've got all these veteran players. And it's just an indication of Gibbs' ability to figure out on this given day, how am I going to win the game? What do I have to do to win the game? This is what great people, all great leaders do, is they figure out what we have to do to win the game. Mickey Corcoran, Bill Parcells' high school coach, always would tell Parcells, Bill, your job is to figure out how to win the game, not tell me how you can't. And Gibbs was brilliant at that. And Gibbs was able to revolutionize the way we do offensive football. And so he was ahead of himself and he was a, and people couldn't catch up to him. And so he was just, to me, he had great leaders. I, in this book I write, you know, I talk about great coaches and I write up the top 100 players and he has one player that he coached in the top 100, Daryl Green. There, nobody, I mean, Art Monk's not a top 100 player. I mean, there's some people that debate Art Monk's value in the hall of fame. If you talk to any defensive coordinator, they would tell you they feared Ricky Sanders or Gary Clark more than Monk. Monk had incredible numbers. He's in the Hall of Fame. That's great. But the reality of it is, is he wasn't, he built a team around team and he coached the quarterback so well that it influenced Belichick when he came to Cleveland because Belichick studied him so much in New York that, that he influenced Bill. To me, that's a great coach. As I hear you talk football, your ability to remember players and and where they were and and what they were doing, it's clear that you were obsessed with football. And even your work today, there's a clear obsession with football. And yet you have these other components where it's clear that you love to read books. It's clear you like to watch movies, uh, listen to music, uh, watch TV shows. It's clear that there's actually more to you than than the game of football. And I've gotten to spend a lot of time with a lot of, we've probably had more head coaches of sports teams than anything else on this podcast. We've probably had that in authors. Um, and like, those are the probably two most common. We've had CEOs too, uh, quite a bit. But the, the word obsessed, and I think about that word obsessed, like it's clear you're obsessed with football, but you also have these other interests and hobbies. I think sometimes we run into people that are sort of one dimensional, like they just know football and they're just interested in that and they can be really successful. I've talked to sports coaches. I don't play golf. I don't have time for golf, but then there are other ones that do and, and do have time for things. How do you think about that word obsessed as it relates to being a head coach or a front office personnel and what, what is needed for those roles when it comes to thinking about football versus other elements of life? I think, you know, at an early age, when Walsh told me about if I knew who Tom Peters was, I think that probably changed my life, you know, because he told me to go to the Stanford bookstore and buy In Search of Excellence. And, and what he tried to tell me in the car was, and I say this with all respect, don't be a gym teacher. You know, don't roll the kickballs out and tell the kids are going to play kickball. Learn from everything that you touch and apply it back to what you love. So everything that I've done, whatever books I've read, whatever shows I've watched, whatever, you know, 
things that I enjoy doing outside of watching football, I try to relate it back to football and try to deliver it in a message that's concise and clear so people can understand it. Because I think if you don't look outside your area of expertise for other ideas, you become stagnant, you know, and you become very, uh, you lack curiosity. I think the one thing I've learned in my 63 years in life is curiosity is the greatest tool to have. If you got curiosity in your tool belt, you'll be successful. But oftentimes we we tend to stop being curious. We think it's a, a childlike behavior, you know, and we don't ask questions because we pretend like we know it all, you know. And, and so I think it's easier to to ask questions. It's easier to be curious. And when you're curious, you, you, you know, you want to be able to like I have, a, you know, I want to become a better writer. So I try to read writers, read better writers, you know, and. You know, I still think of football, but I want to I, I have to I have to have a better way of communicating my message. So I've become obsessed with curiosity. It's something that I, I truly believe is innate. I think every human is born with curiosity. If you ever spend time around a three or four or five year old, I haven't been around one that isn't curious. I think our system can get rid of the curiosity of our children, whether that's through our education system or even sports. I mean, Sir Kenneth Robinson proved that you know, if you listen to him talk about divergent thinking and creative thinking, how different it is, right? And so what, what was that school children that they, I think Daniel Pink talked about this too, is when, you know, when they, they gave kids this, this uh, paper clip and asked them how many ways to use a paper clip when they were in kindergarten, they could come up with 80 ways to do it. And by the time they tested the same children when they were in eighth grade, they could only think of three things. You know, our educational process kind of destroys our divergent thinking. And all this conversation we had today so far has really, we haven't used the word, but Walsh, Gibbs, Belichick, they're all divergent thinkers. They're all divergent thinkers. They, they see an existing problem and they figure out a way to fix the problem. They don't create the problem. They don't create a new model. They just adjust it in a divergent way. So Walsh can't run the ball in Cincinnati. His offensive line sucks. He can't protect the passer in a seven. So divergently, he creates the West Coast offense. I, I talked to someone who worked alongside Nick Saban as well, who I know you talk about in the book. They said Nick will take an idea from anywhere and he steals. And uh, we say I say steals in a in a nice way. I don't mean it in a negative way. I think it's innovation, right? I think innovation is building off of something else. And yet one of the things I struggle with is I can be convicted on something and as a result, it can get in the way of my curiosity. But as I hear you talk about those coaches, I hear them having like a baseline of principles that they believe in that are foundational or philosophical. And then they're super curious about how to evolve off of that. Am I hearing that right? They have conviction in their beliefs and then they are curious about how to make that better. Right. So like like I can remember, you know, Bill, Bill and I went to the Indiana University when Tom Crean was the head coach and Bill would walk around the facility and he would see certain things. But he was curious about what Tom was doing in Indiana basketball, but only would want to apply it that if it fit within his framework of what he was doing. You know, you know, Austin Kleon wrote that book, Steal Like an Artist. Right. So 
we got to find to be creative. You're looking for different ideas all the time. It's when you, you have to then adapt them into your own thinking and your own foundational philosophy. We Bill Walsh called this copycats, right? In, in the NFL, there's guys that sit in their office on a, on, on, and watch plays of other teams that are successful. And so they steal the play. They put the play in, but they don't know why the play is going to work and they don't, know why, they don't know how to fix it when it breaks down. They're copycats. It's like you and I, we could, you know, you're in Bethesda, Maryland. So we're going to go and open up a restaurant and we'll go online. We'll get all of Emerald's recipes and we'll start opening up our, well, we can't cook it as good as Emerald. But if we had a baseline of knowledge, we could take some of his and turn them into ours. Right. And if you listen, if you when they break up. Yeah. And if you listen to artists, whether they're musicians or athletes or actors, they study other artists it doesn't mean they want to be that person. It means that there might be one thing from that person that they can embed into ourselves. And I think that's what inspiration is. Inspiration is, wow, Joe Gibbs inspired me. I loved how he was able to create a system that was plug and play and find new talent to align with him and be about the team. All right, I'm not going to be Joe Gibbs, but that piece Bill Belichick saying, all right, that piece, that's something that I align with. And we have to continue to look for inspiration, whether it's from the military or from an astronaut or from um, science. It can be from anywhere. We constantly have to look for inspiration to then think about aspirationally how we want to be from a philosophical standpoint. And, and I love that because we need a baseline of conviction. Because if you don't have that, any team, any organization will sniff that out. And you'll be gone. Like you need to believe in something. That's what leadership is. And you have to right. be willing to take risks and speak up and speak your mind. And then when you screw up, say, Hey, that was my bad. I messed that up. Right. right. And then stay curious about how you're going to fix it. Right. And the other problem is, is when you steal ideas and you don't know why you steal them is you can't fix them. And now you've lost all credibility with the people you're leading because when it breaks down, you can't fix it because you don't even know why you stole it. You don't understand the genesis of what you stole. And it, until you can, what do they say all the time? You really don't become a mechanic until you can rebuild a car from scratch. It's the only way you really know how to fix a car. It's the same thing. You steal an idea. If you can't break it down to its core, you know, if you don't understand a single wing and you go back and don't watch Clark Shaughnessy's tapes and do all that and study how they evolved that and how they got from A to B to C to D to E, how are you going to steal a play from them and put it in? Do you miss being in the arena, so to speak? You know, I, I really don't. I, I really love writing. I really do. I love football. I love being a writer. I love talking about football. I love being able to mentor people. I've had a lot of coaches kind of ask me to help them. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, I like to be able to get, give my opinions on something and try to help somebody. And obviously I have two sons that both work in the NFL and they give me a lot of joy to help them. So I really don't, I, I, the NFL was a, as Walsh told me years ago, it's a very political animal. It's not the best and the brightest, right? If you're really political and you're good, you can win the media over and you can win the, the Southern primaries and people think you're great. But w when you really know you're not, you know, I, I, I find it, I'm, I'm content. I think the other thing is too, is, Writing a book for me allowed me to gain personal freedom. I, I was filled with bitterness 
when I was in the league. Bitter, I didn't have a better job. Bitter, people were making more money than me that I thought I was smarter than. Bitter that I, you know, my career path, I, I made bad decisions. Bitter about everything, right? And once I wrote that book, really once I once I went to New England, but once I wrote that book, I developed personal freedom that I'm just, I'm really content in my life. And and if I and if you would have said to me when Sonino and Reynolds and I were playing Stratomatic baseball that I was going to go work in the NFL for 30 some years, win three Super Bowls, you know, experience working for Bill Walsh, Al Davis, and Bill Belichick, I decided to sign on the dotted line right then. But you remind me so much of Fran Fraschilla. It's like who connected us because you you mentioned the word mentoring. He mentioned the word mentoring. Kids in the sport, you know, both of you. Maybe Fran mentions how he was treated at St. John's and what went down there and um, maybe some regrets on how that was handled or some bitterness. And yet I'm, I'm like scratching my head here with both of you, because for me, my dad was an entrepreneur. So autonomy or personal freedom, as you called it, was absolutely embedded into me and my two brothers that was valued. And that was, I don't know if it was consciously or subconsciously embedded into us, probably a combination of both. But here you are, you're saying, gosh, I love having my personal freedom, but my my kids are working in this political system. What message are you giving them about about working in a system like that? I'm giving them all the things I didn't that I didn't know when that went in it, you know, as what, what a father should do for his sons is, is basically it, you know, when I went to work for the Raiders, Rod Martin, the former head trainer of the Raiders, called me in his office one day and he said, you know, I don't know you, you don't know me, but let me just give you a little bit of advice. The jungle's not dangerous if you know the trails. And I'll help you know the trails here. And so that's kind of my role with my kids is I know the NFL is a dangerous terrain, but I know the trails. So I'm going to try to help them as much as I can. And that's a beautiful place for us to close. Uh, Mike, the the book was great. Loved it. Uh, I'm a football guy. I, I, you know, I'm in Washington. My, my, my friends think I'm crazy because I still watch every Sunday. My poor son um, sits there. Well, I was a Washington guy too. When Lombardi left the, when Lombardi left the, the Redskins in 70, when he died in September 3rd in 1970, uh, I was a Packer fan up until the, the 69 season when he went to Washington and, you know, I have a whole bookshelf over here with all his stuff and, and I stayed a Washington fan up until the day I got employed by the 49ers. So, you know, I can sing hail to the Redskins with the best of them. And I, I could see RFK. I, I mean, literally, I have a picture of RFK. I can't turn my camera around, but I have a picture of RFK here because when I was in height, when I was in junior high, I would, they asked us to do a book report on someone who was famous, but wasn't a president. And the only person that I really could think of was RFK because I knew of RFK. <laughs> and that's when I, and then I fell in love with RFK. They announced, they just announced that they're, you know, they're blowing it up and you can buy seats and, and stuff from RFK. So we'll see if I end up doing that, but. I have, uh, my wife bought me for Christmas one year. She bought me uh, uh, cufflinks from this, from the wood of some of those seats at RFK. Well, we, uh, I have memories of going there. My dad like bought two tickets from a cousin. And so I'm one of three boys and he'd split them up. So each of us, would get like a 
maybe two or three games a year. And we sat in, you know, in the concourse, there were these makeshift bleachers and we sat behind a pillar. So everyone in the makeshift bleachers would have to slide down when they got in the red zone. So you could see uh, we mm-hmm. were about like the 10 yard line. So you could try to see it. Um, and we used to bang on those bleachers and, um, a whole nother podcast for a whole nother day is about the pain in my heart as far as what has happened there, because this city just used to be obsessed. Sundays were for the Redskins. And, um, you know, now my, my, all my friends, like there's just apathy with, with that organization. And it is, you know, it, it makes me sad. And to your point about going to work for the 49ers, I now have friends that are, you know, people that, you know, uh, fortunately i don't know how but they listen to this podcast and um so i have friends now that are in the nfl and clients and i cheer for their teams like i will definitely cheer for them and when you start working in sports the relationships take precedent over over your childhood dreams and and pride But, but that team still like it just it's not coming out of me even though it's come out a lot of people and it's it's a sad story. That- uh, it's it really is. I love their uniforms. I love the, uh, you know, I, I loved everything about it. I was, you know, I grew up here in New Jersey, and this is Eagle Country or Cowboy Country, actually, too. So, you know, I just love the team, and you know, but those were those were days that, uh, you know, I, I think there's a, and I, I actually kind of working on this, but there's, you know, that podcast, how I built this. Yeah, I love it. Right. I, 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 I've got a way to, I want to do how I destroyed this. Cause I think we can learn a hell of a lot more when people destroy something than when they build it. That's an interesting concept for someone who has access to having podcasts. Cause I've often thought about if you had a podcast, that was just about failure. Same thing. Like we, we tend to just focus on the wins and the successes, but we learn from pain and we learn from, from losses. That's where you learn. Yeah, it's the only chance. I mean, how I destroyed this is more important than how I build it because when you're building something, you need some luck. Destroying something, it's it wasn't because you were unlucky. You know, Gerald Ratner, who gave a speech at the London Economics, and he destroyed his company because he said that his all his jewelry was junk. He destroyed it because he had a stupid message. You know, that wasn't unlucky. That was stupidity. So I think there's a lot to learn there. I do too. Well, we won't do that about you and your career. Uh, we'll save that for maybe others. Um, but this has been a blast. If people want to follow you, obviously the book is Gridiron Genius. You can get it anywhere, anywhere books are sold. That's certainly how I got it and read it. Um, but you're also an author. You've got podcasts, uh, The Daily Coach on online yeah. with Coach Raveling. Um, tell people where they can find everything, you know, Michael Lombardi. Well, I mean, the daily coach is something Coach Rav and I and and uh, uh, other people are involved with, which has been a, a truly a a work of of uh, of love, a, a labor of love for me because it's been something that we've been able to generate over thirty thousand email subscribers every morning to get to read. We have a huge open rate, which is impressive, and, and you impact people. I think that's really part of giving back. That's part of personal freedom. So the daily coach is something that we felt like Coach Rav and I, when we were sitting in in house and in, in in Marina Del Rey, you know, if Steve Jobs needs a coach, everybody needs a coach, you know. And so that's why we that was the basis for it. 
And then I think, you know, then M Lombardi at NFL on Instagram and Twitter, that's kind of where I am. Social media when I don't get agita and go on there and get pissed off half the time. But, you know, because everybody's way smarter than you on that, there's no doubt, you know, and everybody's had better careers than you had, even though they're in their basement in Omaha. But that's beside the point, um, you know, and so that, that I'm pretty easy to find. And I work for Visa, which is owned by DraftKings, which has been a great, for me, the second career that I've had outside the NFL has been really rewarding. And Visa has been a huge part of that for me. Well, thanks for sharing your knowledge, your wisdom. I'm not in a basement in Omaha, but I'm in a closet in Bethesda. So this has been fun. <laughs> fun. Like a nice closet. You got a lot of room. Oh, yeah. I set this up during the pandemic. It's been a game changer. I got two small kids. One of them's having a play date right now, and we can't hear him, which is great. You know, I used He's to lucky today. My two dogs did not bark once. And the mailman who usually comes around this time didn't show up. So we're good. We had we had a guest on a while back who uh, you've probably read his book. His name's Sam Walker, Captain's Class. And oh, yeah, I got Sa- Sam had he had he had dogs barking. He had FedEx. He had. Uh-huh. you know, a, a, a client come over. <laughs> we dealt well, with it. I, I've had the dogs come over because they eat at three o'clock <laughs> and they're so smart that at three o'clock, the, the main one came over and started bothering me. And then she sent her sister over to bother me some more. So I got to jump off here and feed them now or else I'm going to have a revolt. All right. So we'll close. I started by calling you coach. And I think I'm going to stick with that because the daily coach is certainly an opportunity. Like you said, you said everyone needs a coach. And I think what you're doing now is coaching. So keep it up. Appreciate you. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. You can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast coach, uh, Mike, uh, Mr. Lombardi. We'll go with any of the above. Uh, looking forward to breaking bread with you sometime in person. Um, enjoy the pups. And uh, hopefully we talk again real soon. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. They handled the business that they had to handle at the present time. So they gave that their complete attention. And if it took five minutes longer than it probably should have, they were going to, somebody else was going to have to wait five minutes. But they weren't going to delay they weren't going to lukewarm. Oh, I got that. No worries. You know, and then three weeks later, wait a minute, you talked to me about that. I don't remember you saying that. Like they lived in that moment. And I learned at first, I thought it was an inconvenience and I could see by your face, you see it that way too. But as I learned, as I watched it, right. I learned that, you know, they had so many roles within the organization, so many layers of decisions they had to make that five minutes to focus on what the task was again, what is the job? What is it? That they made that decision and somebody paid a four minute price for waiting. <laughs>